There's a short fictional story called Clothes Make the Man. It's about a French criminal henchman named Tango. He had one job while two others broke into a Parisian home. They put on him a nice-looking police uniform, instructed him to walk up and down the street, and pretended like nothing was wrong. His mere presence would deter any idea that a crime was taking place nearby. Now, Tango wasn't a very smart man, but he was big with a wide chest and huge shoulders. And once that uniform was on him, he looked sharp, handsome, and impressive. He could definitely pass as a real cop. So the operation began. The boss and the other robber got inside the home. Tango strolled around. But then he saw a police officer at a corner, and he started getting nervous. Normally, police would have sent him running down the opposite direction. But he stayed calm, saluted the officer who returned the salute, and passed by. Tango felt strange and thankful by the gesture. A few more trips up and down, and there was, a, there was an old lady at the corner trying to cross the street. Tango didn't even notice her fat purse. He just went right up to her and offered his arm. She smiled sweetly and said, Oh, thank you, officer. Please, madam, Tango said. Don't say a word. That's what we're here for. He saluted her with pride. Next, a drunk man came up to Tango, started mouthing foul things about the police, and spat on him. Almost instinctively, Tango grabbed the drunk with one hand and dragged him down the street. Right then, the boss and his partner came out after completing their task. The boss saw what Tango was doing and struck him in the face, asking, You fool, what are you doing? You want to spoil the whole job. At that very moment, an indescribable feeling arose in Tango. He remembered the officer's salute and the grateful elderly woman. As the boss and the other guy watched in horror, Tango took the shiny police whistle and blew it so loud and so long that every policeman in Paris could hear it. Crooks, robbers, he roared. I arrest you, I arrest you in the name of the law. Tell this story and want to ask you, have you ever felt different or even acted differently because of what you wore? The jersey of your favorite team, a new professional suit, a costume for a school play. I remember volunteering in elementary school as a school safety patrol, proudly donning that bright nylon green belt fulfilling my responsibility to help classmates cross the street. But now, what happens when the clothes we wear does nothing in us and nothing for us? And that's the case with many priests in Israel who disgrace their uniform. And last week, we discussed Malachi 1, 6-14, 
And in that passage, God confronted the priests in Malachi's days. He continues his disputation with them in Malachi chapter 2, 1 to 9. So let's read that now and see what these priests have done. Malachi 2, 1 to 9. If you're following along in your pew Bible, it starts, the passage starts in page 673. And now, O priests, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear, and if you will not take it to heart, to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have cursed them already, because you do not take it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your descendants and spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your solemn feasts, and one will take you away with it. Then you shall know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant was with him, one of life and peace, and I gave them to him that he might fear me. So he feared me and was reverent before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth, and injustice was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and turned many away from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge, and people should seek the law from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have departed from the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, I also have made you contemptible and base before all the people, because you have not kept my ways, but have shown partiality in the law. The nine verses that begin chapter 2 are similar to the nine verses that concluded chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 6, the Lord called out the priests and he addresses them again in chapter 2, verse 1. O priests, this commandment is for you. You also see that familiar refrain continue, says the Lord of hosts, occurring three more times here in verses 2, 4, and 8. Combine that with the natural breaks in verses 1, 3, and 7, and now, behold, 4, and we have three sections, verses 1 to 2, 3 to 6, and 7 to 9. As for the contents, it's evident that the priests have failed in three relationships. First and foremost, and most importantly, there's the vertical relationship between the priesthood and God, and that's in verses 1 to 2. Then there's the internal relationship within the tribe of Levi, within the priesthood, that's in verses 3 to 6. Lastly, there's the priest's outward relationship with the people of Israel, that's verses 7 to 9. Now, we're not Levites, so let me package this into three principles for us who belong to the New Covenant. You recall that we read 1 Peter 2 earlier in the service. We learned that we are a holy and royal priesthood of believers. Revelations tell us the same, that we are priests of God and of Christ. 
So now, because of that shared priestly identity with the Levites, we can discover some contemporary applications in today's passage. And I'll be sure to talk about the things that don't apply to us throughout the sermon. And if you're a visual learner, draw a Venn diagram with one circle labeled old priesthood and the other new priesthood. And put the following three points in the overlapping portion. One, resolve to glorify God in worship. Resolve to glorify God in worship. That's verses one to two. Two, fulfill your duties in discipleship. Fulfill your duties in discipleship. That's verses 3 to 6. And three, be exemplary in your leadership. Be exemplary in your leadership. That's verses 7 to 9. First, resolve to glorify God in worship. The golden thread running through here is God's commandment in verse 1. And then he says in verse 2, If you will not take it to heart, and because you do not take it to heart, it, referring back to the commandment, to give glory to his name. God's name or reputation is enhanced when we honor him with sacrifices. But as we saw last time, the disobedient priests have despised his name, offered defiled, contemptible food, bringing the stolen, the lame, the sick. They failed to recognize the Lord of hosts as father, master, and king. They need a reminder that his name is to be feared among the nations. Yet there's no resolution in the priests to exalt the name of the Lord above all. God now responds. On one hand, he offers a chance to repent for this. On the other hand, the judgment has already begun. The Lord has cursed their blessings already. The priests were supposed to be channels of blessings, but now they became channels of curse. Life and peace the Lord intended for them are turning out to be death and distress for the people. They were in danger of facing the punishments recorded in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. And there Moses predicted how the land will be filled with agricultural disasters, plagues, famines, defeats against enemies. So the pious words of the priests became empty and vain. The priesthood became the opposite of Balaam. Remember, Balaam was called to curse, but he could only bless. The priests here were called to bless, but they could only curse. Imagine with me one of them standing at the end of the Sabbath gathering, like the way I do on Sunday gatherings. As you guys know, I use the benediction in number six. That's actually a blessing that Moses commanded the priests to speak. And let me read the passage for you from verse 22 to the end of the chapter, and it should sound familiar. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name on the children of Israel 
and I will bless them. But because of their wicked ways and hypocrisy, their words mean nothing. It's actually worse than nothing. They might as well say, Lord, curse you and break you. The Lord set his face against you and be angry with you. The Lord rebuke with his countenance towards you and give you indignation. I'm not saying the priest actually said this or God literally swapped the words out like this. I'm just saying Israel was in a dire situation because the priest did not resolve to glorify God in worship. Here's an application for the church in New Testament worship. Our prayer should be the one you see in 2 Thessalonians 1.12, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in us. But when we give less than our best, we dishonor that name. We're violating the command to love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. Now, we don't fall under the curse of the law for disobedience, but we are lovingly rebuked and chastened as his own. So let's take the commandment to heart and resolve to glorify God in worship. If we start with this resolution, I believe we'll do what's best for the church, our future. And that leads to the second way to be priests to our God. Fulfill your duties in discipleship. Now, to help us understand verses 3 to 6, here's a quick summary of how the priesthood in Israel started and continued until Malachi's time. In the Old Covenant, unlike the New, the office of priest was confined to one tribe of Israel. Instead of a portion in the Promised Land, Levi and his descendants inherited the priesthood of the Lord as a perpetual statute. Aaron and his four sons were installed, but it did not take long for two of them to waste their privileges, and they died childless. But the two other sons of Aaron... Ithamar and Eleazar kept it going. And generally speaking, the beginning of the Levite ministry was good, as we see in verses 5 to 6. Especially praiseworthy in those formative times was Aaron's grandson and Eleazar's son, Phinehas. He was zealous with God's zeal. He once turned back the Lord's wrath from Israel when they fell into idolatry. For his piety, he was granted a covenant of peace and a lasting priesthood. From his line came Zadok in Solomon's days, Hilkiah in Josiah's days, and Ezra in Malachi's days. Now these priests were failing, endangering themselves and the future of their ministry. They were like Eli and his sons, corrupt and making the Lord's people trespass. They were not fulfilling their duties in discipleship. They were not setting a good example for their descendants who would continue the work of priests. And verse 3 begins with the graphic play on words. In the original language, the word for descendants is zera, which also used for seed. 
Following the noun descendants, you see the verb spread, which has the same cognate root. The verb is zara, and it means scatter, fan, and winnow. So the Lord is saying, behold, I will rebuke your zara, and zara conjugated zeriti, refuse, on your faces. The word for refuse here is elsewhere translated as awful, and we're talking about the internal organs of animals that were not presentable and edible. Could you imagine the gore and the stench from the intestines, especially if it leaked or burst? If I may offer my own wordplay here, that awful must have smelled awful. That's why they were disposed outside of the camp of Israel and burned. Yet all that waste from the solemn feast will be on the faces of the priests. Now, I don't even like my, having my own son's poop on my hand. Imagine animal feces on the face. But because they did not discern between acceptable and unacceptable, holy and unholy, there will be no discerning the priest from the waste. A house cleaning is in order for the house of Levi. That won't be with soap and scrub, but with filth and smear. Rebuke and humiliation, humiliation are necessary for the continuation of the priesthood. And we see in verses 5 to 6 how moving forward requires looking back. We already talked a bit about the foundation of the priesthood and some of the early highlights. Now let's talk about the moral requirements. The priestly ministry is all-consuming work. It requires wholehearted fearing in the heart, teaching with the mouth, and working with the body. In other words, they have to watch over their private life and public life. They had to make sure their talk and walk were consistent. It wasn't just truth and justice in theory, but in practice. It's not only peace and equity in class, but also at home and on the streets. They were not only responsible for bringing many offerings for iniquity, they were responsible for turning many away from iniquity. Now, let's make some applicational connections with our priestly duties. God's people do not offer animal sacrifices in the church age. But again, we're still a priesthood in the new covenant, in the ministry of the spirit and righteousness. We're under the covenant mediated by Jesus, our high priest, over the house of God. So there are important and relevant parallels for us today. For example, consider our priestly speech. Look at the first sentence of verse 6. Is truth in our mouths? Can we say that injustice is not found on our lips? Paul tells us in Ephesians that we must speak the truth in love to each other and with our neighbors. Are we opening our mouths boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel? We're reminded in Romans to proclaim Christ to the Gentiles so that they might hope in him, glorify God, and sing to his name. Are we fulfilling the great commission 
teaching disciples of all nations to observe all things that he commanded. And then there's our priestly walk. Look at the second sentence of Malachi 2.6. How about equity and peace? Paul teaches Colossian employers and managers how they must give to the subordinates what's just and fair, knowing that they also have a master in heaven. Also to the Roman Christians, if it is possible, as much as it depends on us, we must live peaceably with all men. The last part of Malachi 2.6 talks about turning many away from iniquity. We find New Testament equivalents in James 5.19-20 and 1 John 5.16-17. I won't read those, but I'll still discuss it. Obviously, we don't have power of our own to save sinners from eternal death and even sins that lead to physical death. Only God can do that. But God does use us as priestly instruments to warn nominal Christians. Those who are not born again, those deceiving themselves, those who think they're saved but are not, those backsliding and straying from holiness. So in all these ways, we fulfill our duties in discipleship. I believe that if we have integrity in our talk, watch our walk, take sin seriously, Lord will be pleased with our work here. We can continue as church and raise up spiritual descendants to carry on the ministry of the new covenant as long as the Lord tarries. The future of Faith Bible Church depends on our obedience today. But as we increase in our discipleship here, there's also a responsibility towards those who are outside. We are to walk wisely, properly, and have a good testimony towards them. If we are to impact our community, we must lead the way in holiness. That takes us to the third way to be a priesthood of believers, be exemplary in our leadership. Now, just to be clear, the relationship between the priesthood and the nation of Israel does not have an exact parallel in the New Testament. That's because under the New Covenant, the priesthood is itself the church made up of all disciples from all nations. The title of priest is not limited to one tribe of Israel, and it's not limited to clergy either. All true Christians form the universal priesthood of believers. It's on all of us to be the salt of the earth and shine as lights in the world. And together we relate to an imperfect democratic nation ruled by sinful men, not a theocratic nation ruled by a holy God. Still, there's something we can learn from Malachi. Verse 7 hinges on verse 6, reminding us what the priest should have done for Israel. As they speak, people hear, and they should have been hearing God's messages. But that's not what they heard. So here's another rebuke using another prophetic word play. A prophet named Malachi, whose name means my messenger, rebukes the priests who should have been messengers of the Lord themselves. 
onward to verse 8. And again, we're, we see how they've fallen short of God's ideals. First, they themselves departed from the way by their evil speech and actions. The priest didn't stay on track, and so the nation strayed off track. Because they corrupted the covenant of Levi, the people they influence are corrupt. And so we see in verse 9, poetic justice. Because they do not stand above reproach in the sight of all people, God will humble them in the sight of all people. Because they made the table of the Lord and his food contemptible, they themselves will be made contemptible. Verse 9 ends with the accusation that they've shown partiality in the law. And how do they do this? And if you stay in Malachi and turn a few pages to chapter 3, verse 5, it tells us that God will come in judgment against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien. Most likely, the priests have directly contributed to injustice, corruption, and bribery in Israel. They've shown favoritism to those who benefit them, and they turned away those who are helpless and really in need. But God has always stood against favoritism. We read in Deuteronomy 10, 17 to 18, that the Lord, the great God, mighty and awesome, shows no partiality, nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. We read in the New Testament that God the Father shows personal favoritism to no man. He judges without partiality. Pure and undefiled religion before him is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. So, If we're going to be exemplary leaders in our community, We must never hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. If we favor the rich and despise the poor, we break the command to love our neighbors. The temptation is there. Easy to be nice to those who are nice to you. Elevate those that elevate you. But our faith is proved genuine, genuine when we treat with dignity those who can do nothing for us. The neighborhood is watching the priesthood. How will we treat those scorned by the society as useless? The unborn with mom in financial need and dad out of the picture. The lonely old shut-in without family or friends. We ought to fulfill the law by loving everyone around us without favoritism. And to be truly loving, we must first and foremost become messengers of the Lord and messengers of the cross. So now let me address any non-Christian who hears this now or later in the recording. I think I speak for all of us here when I say we want you to know the gospel and believe. Even though Christians are all priests, 
By no means are we perfect. We do not always give glory to God's name. Some of us have stories of how we departed from the way, not just for a few days, but for years, and we have to repent for that. At times, we've been hypocrites, inconsistent in our talk and walk. We've abused our liberty, being a stumbling block for weaker believers. And even pastors today have failed in that command to avoid prejudice and partiality. So you might say to me, what hope is there if even the man of the cloth gets dirty? Thankfully, salvation is not dependent on any mere man. It's dependent on Christ. Though we may form the priesthood, Jesus is the high priest. He's the son of God greater than any angel, yet he became a little lower than angels when he became man. In all things, Christ had to be made like his brethren so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. During his earthly ministry, Jesus never showed personal favoritism, but taught the way of God in truth. Even his enemies could not deny it. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. Yet as the high priest, Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses, in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, to be clear, Jesus was not a Levite. He is from Judah, the royal line of David. He truly is the king of Israel, yet he is also a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, according to the power of an endless life. He brought surety of a better covenant than the absolute one of Levi, having an unchangeable priesthood. The priest in the old covenant ministered daily and offered repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But Jesus offered one sacrifice for sins forever. And that one sacrifice took place at Jerusalem. At the cross, Christ died for our sins, paying the penalty, the eternal penalty of hell, as our substitute. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He got himself dirty to remove our filth and shame of sin. He suffered outside the gate where the waste and bodies of animals were burned so that he might sanctify the people with his own blood. He was cast out as a scapegoat to bring in many sons to glory. After his death, he was buried and rose from the grave the third day. He presented himself as alive for 40 days and ascended to the Father. He now sits at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, and someday he'll return to judge the world. Until then, all must repent and believe in Jesus. Turn from yourselves and your sins. Turn to Christ in faith, 
not relying on anything else to escape hell and enter heaven. God offers eternal life and cleansing as a gift, not of works. So trade in your sowed fig leaves to cover your nakedness. Shed the filthy rags of self-righteousness. Put on Christ for garment of salvation. And it's only the blood of Christ that can cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You can find all these truths in the book of Hebrews. I encourage you to read it. But as, our, as we end our time together, meditate on the lyrics of our last song. For my pardon, this I see. For my cleansing, this my plea. Nothing can for sin atone, not of good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we carry around the name that is so great, the name that is above every name, the name by which sinners are saved. We call ourselves Christians. We are your priests. We are your people. And your desire is to be glorified among the nations. But Lord, There are times when we are just absent in that duty. Lord, we have forgotten. We have become lazy. We have become selfish in many ways. Renew in us this resolve to worship you, to glorify you. May we see and desire to see others, disciples who do the same thing, or multiplying and making more disciples. Lord, help us to relate to the people of this world who are lost in a way that tells them, that warns them of sin, that points to you and your glory. We pray for this. Give us the power to do this by your Spirit. And we thank you for your Son who is our priest. Pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.